0: We have difficulty hearing hard things. Uh, Every one of us, uh, in some way, we have difficulty hearing hard things. I alluded to this one reason just uh, last week. We're just distracted. Uh, We have a a hard time just sitting still, sitting down. We have uh, sometimes an inability or unwillingness to focus, to just take the time and the energy and the effort to, to process things. So we have a hard time, Hearing hard things, if for no other reason, simply because we're distracted. But there's something else, of course, that goes with that. And hard things are hard. Um, It just doesn't go down well. So sometimes it's just we we have difficulty hearing a hard thing because we don't like it. We don't want to hear what's coming towards us, whether we're distracted or or not. And maybe it's all the more so because we're not. We just don't want to hear it. It could be a a necessary thing, though. However uh, uneasy we might be in hearing, I think in terms of you know uh, a report card, right? Um, A a true and accurate but negative report card. I remember this Um, very keenly. You know, uh, the parent has to communication of some kind with. Uh, excuse me, the teacher has communication of some kind with the now upset parent and at least to some degree, perhaps not as much as should be, student about grades that are slipping and sliding and all of that sort of thing and the need to see some improvement and all, and all of that. I mean, it's not fun. It's not easy. It's not pleasant. Um, it's an unhappy thing, but it's a, it's a needed thing. We see something of that dynamic here in this text. Something that's difficult for us to hear, but nonetheless necessary. Okay? Something that's just very difficult for us to hear. And yet, just as much so, necessary and um, vital. Vital for us to hear. And Jesus is speaking to us in some very strong ways because there are some very great stakes. And I suppose you could even make a case that, you know, proportionally speaking, the higher the stakes, the greater the need for us to hear the hard but necessary thing. If you have your Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel. We are in Matthew 12. Matthew chapter 12, moving through in the study of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, first of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We are in Matthew chapter 12, right there towards the end of chapter chapter 12, not quite at the end, but getting close at the end of chapter 12, we are going to be reading uh, verses 38 through 45, Matthew 12, starting in verse 38 and reading on down through verse 45. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Then he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Well, methinks we need to pray, so let's do that. Lord, this is hardly the first time in this series in the Gospel uh, that You have given to us through the pen, the stylus of Your servant Matthew, where uh, there were some things here that even on the surface weren't exactly straightforward. And so we can sense something even just intellectually of our need of uh, Your mercy in giving us understanding. Uh, to clear up the fuzziness of our thinking and just to be able to grapple with what's here. And then to say nothing, though, of the implications and what to do with it and uh, its necessary impact upon our very lives. So we are asking for your help at both levels, both uh, understanding. And then, application. Not a one of us is able to do either on our own. So we're asking for your help. We ask also uh, your assistance. I ask for your assistance personally, just in being able to articulate this. Because there's no human being that can do that in an adequate way so we cannot speak and we cannot hear of these things in our own power. So we are looking to you, the author of, of life himself. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for hearing us. Amen. William Carney is considered to be the first African American to receive the Medal of Honor. He was born in February 1840 as a slave in Norfolk, Virginia. We don't know quite how. The records are kind of spotty in terms of how he was able to win his freedom. We do know that in March of 1863, he joined the 54th Massachusetts Voluntary Infantry. Just a few months later, July of 1863, he was part of a larger force uh, making the assault on Fort Wagner, Georgia. Those of you who have seen the film Glory, that's the big battle scene that's being um, conveyed There, though with a little bit of Hollywood twisting, but nonetheless, the basic facts are they got it okay. I'm going to read you just a quick um, summary of some of the historical events that took place regarding William Carney, that battle, that assault, Fort Wagner, and how it was that he came to be so well-deserving of that Medal of Honor. When the color guard was fatally wounded, Carney retrieved the American flag from his comrade and marched forward with it despite suffering multiple serious wounds. When the Union troops were forced to retreat under fire, Carney struggled back across the battlefield. He eventually made his way back to his own lines and turned over the colors to another survivor of the 54th, modestly saying, Boys, I only did my duty. The old flag never touched the ground. Sometimes in the face of danger, the only right thing to do is to charge forward straight into it. But sometimes, in the face of danger, the only right thing to do is to turn and move away from it. Jesus is speaking of that kind of danger in our text this morning. The danger of which He is speaking here so far exceeds, I, I do not have words or time to delve into the extent to which Uh, withering gunfire on a beachhead doesn't even begin to approach the level, the extent and the degree of the danger that Jesus is speaking of here in this text. He's speaking of skepticism. Of a deep-seated, stubborn skepticism and the danger of that of our own. Of our own. Skepticism and the danger therein. He is warning us here of such skepticism. Oh, that we would take heed of it and turn from it. Oh, that we would take heed of it and turn from it. That's basically what we see here in Matthew 12. There are three facets to this danger I want to look at together. It's there in your outline. Uh, The first being how this skepticism, how this danger so often presents itself. How you can identify what it looks like. Uh, The second thing, following up right from that, is what lies behind it, what's driving it, what's at the root. And then thirdly, what lies ahead of it. What lies ahead of it. So, these three perspectives, three different angles, looking at this skepticism, the danger of of our own, of our own, chiefly speaking. First, how it presents itself. Secondly, what lies behind it. And thirdly, what lies ahead of it. So let's look at these in turn. First, how does it present itself? What does it look like? What are the telltale signs? How might we identify it in ourselves especially? Such skepticism. Understand that Jesus makes this very plain here. This sort of skepticism is not necessarily entirely rational. It is strangely persistent. Look at what we see in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, then. Whether Matthew means then in in the immediate sense, he certainly means it like, I want you to go back and look at what I just told you. Jesus has just freed a man from demonic control. He was blind and mute. We read about that, talked about that, among other things, last week. He's done a host of other things in the course of his ministry. Social media is just ablaze there in Galilee, with all that's been going on, with this enigmatic rabbi from Nazareth, these marvelous words and marvelous works of his, and yet, then, then, they come to him wanting more. Wanting yet more. More proof. They don't want just another miracle. They don't just want something else involving another human person. They want something more, something grand, something grandiose, something great, some sort of sign, something really, really big because they're unwilling to see. They want to see more. You see, here's the strange irony and tragedy. They want to see more because they are unwilling to see. That's the heart's dynamic in play here. They want to see more, insisting they must see more, because they are unwilling to see. There's something deeply rooted down within them. They have no desire. Again, how many things have they already seen? How many things have they already heard from reputable sources? They have no desire to inquire of Jesus. They want to entrap him. That's the goal, at best. Assuming that they even have a rational plan as to what's going on at this, this stage, so it 's deeply seated, but it 's not deeply hidden for Jesus sees and knows exactly what's going on here, and he refuses to play their game, He refuses to be manipulated, which makes sense because you know really manipulating God it doesn't work so Partly, how this sort of deep, stubborn skepticism presents itself is in this strange insistence. Strange insistence. Sometimes, this is just simply true. It's it's a tragic thing, but it's a tragic reality. Sometimes, the heart does not want to believe. However much it may insist, I just need to understand X, Y, and Z. The reality is what's behind it. Is a stubborn unwillingness. It doesn't matter how many questions are asked and how many answers are given. There are times that the state of that individual's heart is such it's never going to be enough. And I just simply want to, to make a quick qualification of, of all of this and say questions are legitimate. I'm not by, please don't hear me saying, if you've got legitimate, real, honest, Questions and concerns about the Christian faith and what it means and what its implications are, then you need to ask them. You need to wrestle with them. Absolutely. And there are a, a litany of sources that, you know, you you're, can be put into your hands before your eyes to address some of those questions. So please don't hear me saying your questions are irrelevant. That's not the point. The point is sometimes, though, What's driving the question has nothing to do with the desire for an answer, but rather to keep everything at bay. Sometimes. And that's clearly what's going on here with these men, with these men in opposition to Jesus there that day. So before I move on to another thing, I simply want to pose this question to all of us. Could that be me? Could that be you? Could I be doing the very same thing these men are doing here? This is not fiction. This is not a flight of fancy. Could I be doing the very same thing that they are doing? And Jesus is warning us here of such skepticism that we would take heed and turn. That we would take heed and turn from it. All right, that's how it presents itself, at least one way. Following up on that, we learn something as to, more as to what lies behind it. What's driving it, what's at its the roots, what's the source, where it's coming from. Uh, and there's two images. Uh, one that uh, Jesus has already given, I want to take you back to and remind you of that. This is some weeks ago we looked at this. And another is right here in this text. Two images. One of a spoiled child and two Of a wayward spouse. Okay? Now, some weeks ago, we saw this. Turn with me to Matthew 11. Uh, Jesus is making a a similar argument, uh, not quite as much sting in the tail, but a similar argument in Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 and 17. This is, in Matthew 11, you begin to see the tide of opposition to Jesus just beginning to rise. And Jesus is aware of this, notes this, speaks right into it. And this is one of the first things that he says uh, to those who would have but ears to hear. Matthew 11, verses 16 and 17. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Okay, here's what's going on. In, In that part of the world, in that part of history, village life, the major highlights of village life would be Weddings and funerals, those are big deals in a village in the ancient Near East. And so not surprisingly, children being children notice this, they're taking part in this, and then when it comes to time to play and use their imagination, will incorporate activities revolving around weddings and funerals into their play. And so what's going on here? It's a common sight in the marketplace. Jesus is just hearkening to this very thing that all of his listeners understand. But here's a group of children. One group says, hey, let's play wedding. I'll be the bride. You be the groom. You be the, I don't know, the lady with the cake. Not a cake, but you get the idea. Um, and, and they say, let's play wedding. And this other group over here, no, uh, we want to play. I don't want to play wedding, right, with a surly curl of a lip and all that stuff. No one can imagine your own children doing this but, or, or ourselves doing this. But, but no, I don't want to play wedding. I want to play funeral. I want the dirge. I don't want the dance. I want the dirge. And this group says, I don't want to play funeral. I don't want to play wedding. And nobody plays anything. They just sit down, pout, and sulk. And Jesus sees in that that miserable, sad little thing that we can all identify, our memories as children, and the understanding of our own. Jesus sees in that, in the heart of that, in the dynamics in play in that, the very thing that's going on with those around Him who are hearing Him but not hearing Him. You are like spoiled children. You are like brats in a snit. Don't ask Jesus to come to your fundraiser. You're like spoiled children, like a brat in a snit. You will never be satisfied with anything. It's never enough. It's never enough. Why? Because there's a deep demand for something else beyond or less than what I'm giving. You're like spoiled children. That's Matthew 11. Now that's bad enough. Hold on. Glad you're seated. We're moving to Matthew 12, the text we read just a few moments ago. Now he's going to compare us, not just to spoiled children, but to wayward spouses. Verses 39 and 40. In the skepticism of our hearts, to that he says, in verses 39 and 40, but he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay. A sobering reply. He says, Your demand for a sign for starters is evil. That is, at its roots is Satan, the devil. Your demand for such a sign is evil. You yourselves are adulterous. You are spiritually wayward. This is the tear-drenched, heart-wrenching language of the Old Testament prophets as they would cry out with the voice of the Lord to His people as the one who was deserving of so much more than their treacherous faithlessness. It's the very same language, very same imagery that Jesus is using here. He's saying, You're evil. Your response is adulterous. It's a strong reply and then a clear refusal. No! I'm not going to give you the sign. I'm not going. Yours is not the place to make demands of me. Yours is to receive and to believe the sign I'm going to give you which is not what you want, when you want, but it's the sign of Jonah. sign of Jonah? What is that? It's not a miracle that Jonah many moons ago had performed. It's rather the man himself. The man himself is the sign. The man himself is the miracle. That is, coming forth three days later, resurrected, in a sense, from a watery grave. And Jesus is saying... Just so with me, but even more so, three days later, from the dead, I will rise. Then you'll know. Or at least you should. Or at least you should. Point being, in all of this, it's a heart issue. I alluded to this when we began the service. The, the, the receptivity, the degree to which we will respond to what he is saying, is a heart issue. That's what is, is the marker. That's what's the differentiating factor. The receptivity of the heart determines the responsiveness of the heart. Think with me just of the testimony last week. I know you're going to get nervous. That's okay. James Comey, former FBI director James Comey, his testimony before Congress. Okay, I'm not going to make one comment on it, so don't think that's where I'm going. There's a lot of other people that are making all kinds of that as it is and will be for weeks to come. I just simply want to make an observation as to how it was reported. Let me give you some perspectives. The Huffington Post on the left side, if you will. This is how they summed it up. Lying Trump White House defamed me. National Review on the right. Again, Pressure is not obstruction. Sounds like they're looking and describing two different hearings, doesn't it? Wonder why. Here's some more. Buzzfeed on the left. Lies, plain and simple. On the right, the Blaze. Comey, Lynch directed me to downplay Clinton email probe. Sounds like some of the marital counseling I've done. They're describing two complete, almost like two completely different marriages Of course, there's so much more to say about that, that whole deal, but I don't want to say a word of it. I simply want to make this point, and that is, the prior bent of the news agency making the reporting drives the reporting. You see that? The prior bent of the news agency Relaying the story determines how they report the story. Now that's a truism you can see across the board in all of life. It's the heart driving the response. The grid through which we see shapes our conclusions. Our filter forms our reflections. How we think about it, how we process it. Is how this plays out. Okay, so you have sometime in the recent past, let's say, done a crackerjack job, a bang up, wonderful job of relaying and presenting something in, in terms of apologetics and the defense and explanation of the essentials of the Christian faith. And you've relayed to some person, a coworker, worker, a friend, or something, uh, of, of, okay, look, here's my, just bear with me, you know. Um, if, in fact, Christianity is true, these are the kinds of things that you would see in the very real world if, in fact, they're true. And, oh, by the way, here's what you see. And it lines up, and you go through a list of five things. Say, like, you know, scientists, physicists know that every there was a start to the universe. Right? It's not eternal. That can be verified. It's scientifically shown and proven. There was a, a beginning. Okay? And then... Moving on from that, you can say, well, and in fact, we see order and evidence of order and design and, and everything around us, from the you know the microscope to the telescope, it's everything. And then there's this nagging, um, pesky sort of sense of a longing of more of a God in our lives, and it's across cultures, and and then you you see the fact that there's an ethical uh, framework, a moral framework to all of life, and we can you see the consistency again across cultures and times and all those things, and. And, and people's groups, and, and then you start exploring things. You know, if, if in fact all this was true, you would see, and in fact you do see evidence of the, of the living God, the God of the Bible, intersecting in time and history and space, and you start talking about that, and you think you've just laid it out there so winsomely and warmly. I mean, like, Francis Schaeffer's taking notes, and C.S. Lewis is impressed, right? And you've laid it out there. And you're waiting for a response. Hallelujah, you know, from the other person. I I you know, what must I do to be saved? You know, that sort of Philippian jailer, and you got nothing. Nothing, at best, if not just some sort of gesture. Why? Why is that? Because ultimately this is not about evidence. And ultimately, this is not about making good arguments. Ultimately, it's a spiritual thing. It's a matter of the heart. The receptivity of the heart drives the response of the heart. Now, my friends, if you will just, we will just let that settle in for a minute, that ultimately it's a heart issue, that should give us all pause. Pause. And a call to pray. A moment to pause and a call to pray. All those things being true. Jesus is warning us here. He's warning us here of such skepticism and the need to heed this and take it seriously, the dynamics in play. All right, so we've looked at how it presents itself. We've seen something of how it lies behind it, and now we're looking at what lies ahead. The results. Where is it going? What is the, barring a miraculous intervention, what is going to be the outcome? Um, and as if what you think Jesus has said already was strong, it's about to get a bit stronger still. He begins with speaking of a just condemnation. He appeals to their heritage and history, hearkening them back to things they all knew. His hearers all knew. He speaks of places of the past. Uh, back in, I will take you back to Matthew 11 again. Similar, similar arguments. Not quite as edgy in Matthew 11 as it is in 12. But let's go back to 11 because you got to get the sense of, of where he's already been, what he's already said, and now you know how he's pressing in when we get to 12. So 11, you see, in verses 20 through 24 reminding them, hearkening, pressing because of places in the past, examples they should know and understand. Uh, Matthew 11, starting in verse 20, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And then it comes a list of places he has been. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, another place in that time, will you be exalted to heaven. You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Okay, the idea being is, again, Jesus is hearkening back to these places in their past. And just to simplify the argument, what he's in essence saying, look, they if they had heard what you have heard, if they had seen what you have seen, they would have believed. They would have trusted the, mess, the message and the messenger. If they had seen what you have seen, if they had heard what you had heard, they would have believed. Pressing in, pressing in. But he goes even further here in, in the next place, and this is uh, in Matthew 12, the text for this morning, verses 41-42, moving from places in their past to persons in their past, historical figures uh, that they, they, knew, they knew well, verses 41-42. The men of Nineveh, so he mentioned Jonah right earlier, so it's not surprising they knew that that brings up a reminder of the, of the men of Nineveh. That's, Nineveh was the place that Jonah was preaching. So he he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So it's a slightly different argument, because here he's saying, they, they did, they did, The Ninevites, these pagan people, hated by the Israelites, despised by the prophet Jonah himself. It's part of the plot of the book of Jonah, those four chapters. They heard the good news of the living God, the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South. Likely, historians say, uh, Old Testament scholars believe, likely from uh, Southwest Arabia. She came... We read about that. She comes and visits and is enthralled by the wisdom of King Solomon. She hears, in essence, the good news of the living God. So the Ninevites, the queen of Sheba, they hear. They believe. You, despite all your privilege, despite all that you have seen, despite all that you have heard, have not, have refused, have turned your back on the living God. Strong, strong words here. You think in terms of who Jesus is self-understanding, right? My implication what He is saying. And and the, the strong point of this just condemnation. But He goes even, can I say, even further? By giving this terrible warning? So here's what's coming ultimately for you if you do not turn If you do not lay down your skepticism of me, here's what's coming in the ultimate sense. And then he speaks to, and here's what's coming in your days on this earth ahead. Okay? Verses 43 through 45. This parable, it's a story that he tells. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Okay, so obviously Jesus is assuming the reality of evil spirits. The reality of, of demonic work in this world. He's assuming that. Okay? Okay. Now, we don't know the details. He doesn't explain the details as to why this particular demon leaves that person. That's the house, the, the host. Why he, for whatever, we don't, we're not told that. It's just, it's there. It's part of the story. He leaves. Not quite sure why he comes back, but when he does, this poor man is now controlled and dominated and oppressed in a way far worse than before. Okay? And the the lesson here, what Jesus is driving at here, and why he's telling this to the Pharisees and the scribes is, neutrality towards me is not an option. Your skepticism and keeping me at arm's bay is not an option. You think it's enough to clean and sweep the house. You think good moral reform, sola bootstrapsa, Getting your act together is going to be enough. I tell you, it will not. It will not just be insufficient. It is worse than insufficient. Oh, that it was just insufficient. It is deceptive, damaging, and dangerous. Your self-moral reform. Don't be deluded. And don't think you can hedge your bets. And don't think that there's neutrality as an option in responding to Jesus. That's something we've seen again and again over the course of Matthew 11 and 12. And it's flaring up again here by implication. I was thinking about neutrality and the dangers of neutrality and the fact that there is just a time to to call what side you're on. The news of of, uh, Great Britain and the election and a prime minister and her rule and, and power and all of that sort of thing got me thinking about another prime minister from Great Britain years ago, Neville Chamberlain. Ah, the great Neville Chamberlain. Um, and um, his, the treaties that he made with Hitler and his naivete regarding the, the advance of the Axis the, the Nazi war machine through Europe in the 1930s and his ridiculous, foolish aim towards what he referred to as Peace in our time. There's a time to declare sides. There's a time to say, this is where I'm going. This is who I am. And to get off the fence. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Neutrality with me is not an option. Let me just press it a little harder here. Belief in God is not enough. A bare naked boring theism or deism is not enough. Living a good upstanding life is not enough. This is what worries me about some of the stories of conversions. That I'm not saying conversion will take place, but sometimes I wonder, is it, Is it? Or is it just a halfway measure? We get all excited, you know what I mean? When we hear stories of a celebrity of some kind, oh, they believe in God now. They've they've swept the house is what they've done. They've swept the house. They've cleaned the room. A moral reform is underway, but I fear for their soul more than before. Because of the deception. Because of the damage. Because of the, the danger. You see, cleaning and, sle- cleaning and sweeping the floor, straightening things up and getting our act together, without faith, without repentance, without an earnest turning to Jesus, is, can be socially acceptable, especially in the South. Can be socially acceptable, but spiritually dangerous. Dangerous. And that's what Jesus is pressing on here for us. I mean, if it wasn't the case, why the coming of the Son if moral reform would do it? Why the sending of the Son? Why the sending of the Spirit? Why bother God if we can do it ourselves? Jesus is warning us here of this skepticism, the danger of neutrality, and pleading with us to turn. Now, ending, I want to wrap this up and say this. Though all that those things that we've looked at and said so far are, I think, eminently clear from this passage, still yet, I know, there is a hesitation in our hearts to engage with it, to really hear it. It reminds me something of the psychology, the psychological studies that have been done of those who ignore storm warnings, right? And we living in middle Tennessee kind of get that, right? Because we know what it is to live through the tornado warnings, one after another, after another, after another. We know, right? We know what that is, um, we hear the siren in the neighborhood. We see the scrolling words on the bottom of the TV screen. Our smartphone goes off. The weather radio goes off. And yet we hesitate. We, we, we hear the warning, right? Find your safe space. And yet we hesitate. Why? Well, likely because we've been desensitized, right? We've heard this so many times before, right? And nothing came. We're still here, right? The house is still here. I'm still here. How bad could it be? It's so much trouble. I'm not advocating this. I'm just (laughs) forget everything I just said. You know, when a storm warning comes, Um, we've heard it all before. It seems like so much. So we're desensitized and we're in denial, right? It can't happen to me. It won't come on my street. And how bad could it be? We're desensitized and we're in denial, and you take those things and you bring it down to this text and how it comes out, and why it is it we hesitate there? We are desensitized here. There's, I mean, I think how many of us have been put off through the years by the red-faced preacher and his screams about the fire and brimstone, and how that desensitized us to the subject. Okay, think logically with me. Yes, the man was boorish. And clumsy in his handling of some important issues, but does it necessarily follow he was wrong? Desensitization need to be wary of that. Denial. We downplay the significance of these things. Downplay the stakes. He surely can't be speaking to me. Do you know that? Why would Jesus say this unless it was actually true? Why the cross? Unless it would to, to spare us of the things that He is warning us of here. Jesus is warning us here of the dangers of our stubborn skepticism. Oh, that we would take heed of this in turn. Let's pray. Lord, we know that these are not these men standing before You in their stubborn skepticism were not figures of fiction. These are real people, real skeptics. The danger that You are describing is not a fanciful idea. And in Your mercy and in Your wisdom, and how You do know us, we ask even this morning that for those of us here that that are disturbed by this, that You would give us comfort. Conversely, those of us who are here this morning too comfortable in hearing these things, we ask for Your mercy and that You would disturb us. Give us an awareness of such tendencies of um, being desensitized and in denial in our own lives. Help us to be those who would love others to be so concerned and pray for them as well. Give us ears to hear these difficult but necessary things. And thank You more than anything. Thank You for putting Yourself right in the middle, sheltering us from the torrents of just wrath due upon us. If we would but turn to You. In Your name we pray. Amen.